from our gospel this morning. And when the wise men saw the child with Mary, his mother, they fell down and worshipped him. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Well, good morning, friends. Happy Feast of the Epiphany. I've made a New Year's resolution. I'm not going to preach any sermons shorter than 45 minutes. I'm just kidding around. Today is the Feast of the Epiphany. Ordinarily, I have to transfer it because it occurs during the week. It always occurs on January the 6th, 12 days after Christmas, or 13 days rather. And that's where the 12 days of Christmas come, from Christmas Day to the Epiphany, where Christmas ends. And now the season of the Epiphany begins. But... If you were here Christmas Eve and the week before that, you heard me say that Christmas and Epiphany, they're, they're great times of the year, it's fun, but I think it's also dangerous. And what I mean by that is that Christmas and Epiphany, like Easter and some other things, they're so covered up with sentiment and what we think is in the story that we actually miss the profundity of what's actually going on here. I mean, for example, we all know that the wise men brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh, right? And like Christmas, we hear of all these images in our mind of what occurred at the Epiphany. For me, it's uh, guys with camels and turbans and, you know, all that sort of thing. But the real story that I want to dial in on today with the Feast of the Epiphany is actually a lot more profound. We're going to scrape away some of that Christmas kitsch, and we're going to look at something really, really profound, which is this. We're going to look at the conversion of the human soul. Specifically, we're going to look at the conversion of the human soul to a living faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. I'm going to submit to you this morning that the wise men, and I'll get to what that means in a minute, the wise men are actually a profound and cool case study of the process of the conversion of the human heart. And so we're going to look at the study, the story this morning, which you've heard a hundred times, from a different lens. We're going to look at it as the process of them beginning, them learning and meeting God with three points that come right out of the text. The first point is their response to God's call. Notice that, response to his call. Secondly, they meet Jesus face to face. And finally, the aftermath, war and peace. So the first point is going to be the response to God's call. The second point is meeting Jesus face to face. And then the aftermath, the conversion, peace, but war. You ready? All right. So hopefully I get you to see this from a little bit of a different angle this morning than you're used to. Point one is the response to God's call. Um, Matthew tells us that after Jesus' birth, wise men from the east came. Now let me just stop right there and just kind of dial in on who these guys are. The, uh, the Greek word is the word magi, magi, we say in English. Where wise men comes from, I haven't the foggiest idea, but the Greek word is the word magi, and the, the magi are not kings, and they're not from the Orient, and there wasn't only three. So we three kings of Orient are, it's not true. Sorry to bust your bubble, but that's kind of my point. I'm trying to show you what's going on here. These guys, these kings, we don't know how many they were, there were. We do know they're not from the Orient. They are from Persia. 
Persia is modern-day Iran, and you may know that the Persians had an empire. And these magi were not kings, they weren't royalty, but they were advisors. They were kind of like the president's cabinet, you might say, or a board of, more than that. They were guys that were empowered by the king of Persia to go out and to carry out what he wants them to do. Now, if you know anything about people that are in politics, in Washington, for example, these people are always really highly educated, capable, motivated, and entrusted with power, right? And it's exactly the same with the Magi. They are highly educated, capable, motivated, entrusted with power by the king. They have all the power the ancient Near East could muster. You, you don't mess. You don't mess with the Magi. The Magi were political and the political and intellectual, listen, elites of the ancient Near East. They, and they are on a mission. They're on a political mission to investigate the birth of another king. So the Magi believed, like lots of other cultures in the time, believed that astrological signs accompanied great things in history. And so in this case, they see a star behaving strangely, and the king says, all right, boys, figure that out. Didn't quite say it like that, I'm sure, but yet the idea. They see this planet behaving strangely, and they go to investigate. They go to investigate the birth of a new king. Now, one thing you have to understand before we dial into this uh, for a minute is to go from Persia to Bethlehem is not an overnight trip, right? It's not a long weekend. It's a two-year journey. It's expensive. It's dangerous. It's uh, risky. What if you can't find the kid? What do you tell the king back at home? The point I want you to see here, and this is really crucial, and we miss this, that for them to go and to investigate this birth of this new king was incredibly dangerous and incredibly risky to them, both professionally and even bodily. But I want you to see this. The wise men, the magi, responded with a need to investigate a claim to investigate something that God had placed before them. Don't miss that. The Magi go to investigate a claim that God had placed before them. Let me just stop right there and just make an obvious point. Because I want you to see that this story is not about them. It's actually about you. What Can you think of an event or events in your life that God placed something there that piqued your curiosity? Can you think of anything in your life that something occurred or somebody said something that piqued your curiosity and you knew you had to investigate? I'm going to give you an example from my own life. Um, many of you know that I went to graduate school for a PhD in industrial psychology, which sounds boring, but it's actually a pretty cool field. But while I was, while I was in grad school, I was 22 years old on a free ride, I taught statistics and scientific research methodology. Now, I was not a believer. I was a strict, logical, empirical, left-brain guy. And sci- as I, I, I began to teach this scientific method, and I discovered some things which actually, actually piqued my curiosity. One, that science is not what you study, but how you study it. Did you know that? Science is not what you study, but how you study it. It's a method. For example, and science assumes all sorts of things 
that you can't prove. For example, the scientific method assumes something, and this sounds like common sense because we all do it, but it's an assumption. You can't prove it. For example, that events repeat themselves. If I was eating a bagel today and I drop it, it's going to fall down, right? And if I drop it tomorrow, it'll fall down. That's an assumption. I can't prove that. I also can't prove that that bagel is real. I can't prove it's physical. How could you? I can't even prove I'm really here. It sounds crazy, but you know, Rene Descartes, I think, therefore, I am. What he was trying to do was prove that he existed, and guess what? That was logically disproven. Here's my point. What I learned in graduate school, which had nothing to do with psychology, but a lot to do with God, was that the things that I had been, my worldview had always led me to believe that science and empiricism was the way to go. But now I knew these were just assumptions I had used. And I couldn't prove them. And the reason I did use them is because they worked. Logically, for example, how many of you have uh, investments? Anybody? Maybe a couple. 401ks, whatever. Whenever you go to make an investment, what do you do? You call your investment broker, you call your guy, or they call you, and they lay out all the performance data, and they try to make the pitch, and then after, after all is said and done, what do they say before you pull the trigger? They say, past performance is no guarantee of future success. Right? Science says the same thing. Just because things have always worked a certain way doesn't mean that they always will. And that's actually not the, the point. What really rocked my world was I had to realize that everything I had believed in as fact was actually merely just an assumption. And in fact, all worldviews work that way. Empiricism, atheism, logic, reason, even Christianity. They're all views of the world, and the way they work is that we look at the evidence, we, we assume that they are true, but the way you know they're true, listen, is that they actually have, make the world make sense. The reason we use science is not because science is somehow true, it's because when we use it, we can build things. But it's based upon assumptions. Here's my point. All worldviews, what, what really knocked me over, what rocked, rocked my intellectual world, was to realize that everything in this world is an assumption that I make. And so therefore, if Christianity makes the claim that it's true, and if Christianity makes the claim that it works, and it does, I have to believe it. Now, what about you? That's a pretty heady, I will admit, I'm a nerd, and I will admit that's very heady, and a lot of people don't come to faith in Jesus by studying science and statistics, I get it. But what about you? I mean, We've all got it, right? We've all got something. Where, what has God placed in your own life that led you to him? Maybe it was the law. Maybe it was somebody died. And you're trying to wrap your mind around the fact that your worldview has just been radically altered. And you're trying to make sense. Maybe your marriage fell apart. Maybe, maybe you saw a miracle. I've seen those too. Maybe you were shown kindness by somebody you didn't expect it. Maybe... Maybe you taught statistics and scientific research methods in grad school, and that's what brought you there. My point is, here's the thing I want you to see in the wise men and in your own life. It's this. God places things in your path. He will raise your curiosity. He'll pique your curiosity. But you, friends, have got to get off the dime and investigate. The details of how he does it, man, are as varied as the number of people in this room, number of people on the planet. But God puts evidence in our lives that challenge us to think differently. That's my first point. My second point is that once the wise men are challenged, they get off the dime and they go 
Point two, the conversion of the human heart. See, evidence is not going to get you there. It's an old canard. No one has ever been reasoned into the kingdom of God. You ever heard that before? It's true. Here's what happens. The wise men, these astrologers, they, are, they go, they see this star, they follow it to investigate, and they go to the palace where the king should be. Problem, problem is there's already a king there. His name's Herod. And they say, Herod, where's this new king? And Herod says, uh, what new king? <laughs> new king? Excuse me. I'm the king. I'm Herod. And, and they tell him what's, what has occurred. And Herod says to them, hey, I got an idea. When you find the kid, let me know where he is so I can go and, and worship him too, which Herod intends to kill him, which later on he attempts to try. Get to that in a minute. But the Magi, here's what I want you to see. The Magi, they follow the star, they follow the evidence, they go where it leads, and then, and then, bam. This is what happens. Matthew says in verse 11, listen to this. And going into the house, the wise men saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. (laughs) Listen to that again. They fall down and worship him. There's no... Hey, Mary, how are you? There's no introduction. The wise men literally see him face to face and they fall down. That Greek word for fall down is the word proskineo. And it means literally to hit the deck, to bow down before something so profound, so life-changing that all you can do is duck and cover. That's the, and it's not like they think about it. It's a gut reaction. And this is the thing I want you to see. I don't care who you are, whether you're Nick the Magi or you're the person sitting in your seat right now. I don't care who you are. It's not until you finally meet him and you finally realize that he is the most important thing in your life that you'll get it. It is not until you realize that that your life is not about you, but about the God who made you, the God who created you, the God who put breath in your lungs this morning, the God who gave you the smarts and the skills and the personality that you have, the God that gave you life. Here's the question. It's a big one. Do you bow down before Jesus? I'll get to that in a, what I mean by that in a second, but let me just ask it. Do you bow down before him? It sounds weird. We all bow down to something. Is he your go-to? Is he the first thing you go to when something comes up in your life or when you're thankful for something? Do you worship him? Notice that here we see a story in these magi of the most powerful, wealthy men in the ancient Near East. These men who have everything the world can offer, political power, financial power, intellectual power, you name it, man. These guys are blue bloods. They meet this toddler two-year-old and they fall down before him. They realize in that moment that despite all the wonderful things about that they owned, they were nothing compared to Jesus. And you know, what I want you to see here is that it's, it's always the same story. Always the same story. Look at the great saints of the church. Peter, Paul. Doubting Thomas, Mary Magdalene, the men on the road to Emmaus, you, anybody you know who's a Christian. It's only when you meet him. The evidence will get you here, but then it's only when you meet him 
that you're converted. So here's my question. It's the, I hope it's the one you're asking yourself. Have I met him? <laughs> what does that mean? Well, how do you know if you've really met Jesus? Well, let me just preface this by saying one quick thing. I don't do refrigerator magnet theology, <laughs> okay? I don't do bumper sticker theology either. Have you met Jesus means something. And then also our story, this is our third point. How do you know when you've met him? This actually comes right out of the text too. Let me show you. Two points from our story. When these wise men meet Jesus, they follow the evidence, they meet him. Third thing, we see, we see peace, but we also see war. The wise men, they meet Jesus, they are changed, they fall down and worship him. They realize they have met God. They realize they have all the questions that they wondered their entire lives. God, this resonates with me so clearly. All the things you struggle with and think about and wrestle with and worry about, here he is. They see God, they meet him, and it brought them satisfaction and it brought them peace. But their conversion, the Magi, their conversion also brought them war. And here's how you know if you've met him. If you read a little further along in the story, Herod, who's a crazy, murderous man, <laughs> um, later, later on, Herod discovers he's been tricked. The Magi go a different way back home, and, he, and Herod orders the murder of all of the boys under two in the city of Bethlehem. Why two? It took him two years to get there. Friends, Herod murdered 35 kids, Friends, Jesus brings peace, but he also brings war. It's a guy named John Stott. He's an Anglican priest, Church of England. He has in his book called Basic Christianity, I commend it to you, he says the following. It's a famous passage. I'm going to read it. He says, no one who ever met Jesus Christ ever responded moderately to him. <laughs> the only three things you see when people meet him is they run away in terror, they assault him in fury, or they prostrate themselves in surrender. Man, that's profound. They run, when you meet him, you either run away, you assault him, or you prostrate yourself in surrender. Friends, when Jesus comes into your life, he brings peace, but he also brings new fights, new strife. If you've got this idea that Jesus is all about that Christianity is all about butterflies and puppy dogs. You're not hearing the whole story here. Anybody here have uh, family or friends who uh, maybe you're at Thanksgiving dinner, you bring up your faith and they just get furious? Anybody? <laughs> Anybody have family or friends that they, they hear you're going to church and they think you're crazy? Anybody have kids who roll their eyes when you tell them you got to go to church on Sunday morning? Friends, when you give yourselves to Jesus... When you bow down before him, you will lose friends. I did. People will call you intolerant. People will call you judgmental. The things you used to like to do no longer appeal to you. When you give yourself to Jesus, friends, you really have to give yourself to people. You have to, give, you have to make yourself vulnerable. You have to go out on a limb. You invest in people. You open your heart to people. And you're going to get hurt. You are going to get hurt. Christ brings peace, but he also brings war. Jesus says this very thing. If this sounds surprising to you, it shouldn't, because he says this 
repeatedly. And I'll give you one example. He says in John 16, 33, he says, In this world you will have strife, but fear not, for I have overcome the world. So how do you know if you've really met him? Well, you have peace that passes all understanding. But friends, you will also have war. And if you don't have war, that means nobody knows that you know Jesus. The story of the wise men is a lot more profound than we give it credit for, because you know what? The story of the wise men is real life. It's conversion, and it's messy, but it's beautiful. To have a life-changing relationship in Jesus Christ, to follow the evidence, to meet him, and to have the peace which passes all understanding, even in the midst of strife and challenge. Shall we pray? Father, teach us that the circumstances in our lives are there to pique our curiosity. Help us, give us the courage to follow the facts where they lead. Help us to meet Jesus face to face and to submit our lives to him. In his name we pray. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.